Hey, Steve, can you hear me okay? I can hear you great. This is really good. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, quality-wise, this is amazing. Okay, perfect. All right. I am to please. All right, let's <laughs> do it. My name is Steve Joel. I'm a radio host from New Zealand and a Warhammer 40K superfan. Uh, one thing I'm going to ask for sure later on is uh, how you got to be the Tom Brady of 40K. I really want to hear that story. I would love to tell the story. I'm going to preface this right now that it might not necessarily be G-rated. Is that okay? <laughs> well, this series on the Frontline Gaming Network is a chance for us to hear from the people who have changed the way we play, paint, read, collect and consume 40K. Whatever the reason you love this hobby, I want you to meet the Game Changers. I'll try to say this in the most politically <laughs> correct way possible. Okay. Um, now I really want to hear it. <laughs> this is episode four, and as much as you think you know about the brown magic, I guarantee you're going to learn a lot more about the man over the next 40 minutes. This episode of 40K Game Changers is brought to you by the Frontline Gaming 40K Events Express Pass, a virtual ticket for any three events run by Frontline Gaming through to the end of 2022. Events like the LVO 22, the BAO, SoCal, and the New Orleans Open. 14 events to choose from. Pick any three and save over 23% on the ticket price on average. Get a COVID-proof Express Pass. The link is in our show notes. Now, let's introduce our guest. My guest today is a four-time winner of Adepticon, three-time winner of the Nova Invitational, two-time ETC winner. He's an LVO champ and ATC winner. He is also the pioneer in 40K coaching and the founder of Art of War 40K. In any conversation about tournament players to beat, his is always the first name mentioned. He is to 40k what Brazil is to football and Ferrari is to Formula One. Nick Nanavati, how are you my friend? Thank you so much for having me Steve. That was an amazing introduction and I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> but it's true though um, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into stuff later on but I, I want to ask because it is true that anytime you see online people talking about you know tournaments or tournament players or lists or talking about the players to beat your name is always in there as one of the first names, and it has been for a few years. Does that add pressure to being Nick Nanavati going into a tournament, uh, you know, knowing that you're going to be scrutinized or looked at or that your list will be held up? Uh, it's definitely, I don't want to say inconvenient because it's also incredibly flattering and, you know, but it's definitely added pressure. Like, you know, yeah. when you go to a tournament and you've come up with some really cool list that like you know the internet hasn't found out about already and you're like I'm gonna take the world by storm I don't really get that privilege anymore because everyone at yeah. that tournament is going to look at my list and then study it and then figure it out so that kind of sucks uh, right. because there's basically just a target on my back forever but um, overall I'm, I'm pretty excited about the place I found myself in yeah you got to be confident with it too in that uh, you know if I come up with a list all it takes is for one mediocre player to say well oh, I don't know about neuronthopes and I go oh man okay I've got to take them out but you you kind of need to go I'm backing myself this is my list I don't care what other people say oh it's actually that's a real thing um, so many of my, the art of war is a global brain I, I've a known player across seas the ETC like you mentioned in America and Australia all over the place so 
when I write lists and it doesn't match up with maybe what the meta of New Zealand is or something like that, they look yeah. at my list and they're like, what the hell is this thing? And, you know, I, I do get that luxury of just being able to back it up with what I can do on the table. You right. Know? Yeah. So that's always pleasant too. Right. Let's, let's, we'll come back to all of that. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's start right from scratch. What got you into 40K? When was this? I started playing 17 years ago when I was 10 years old. My fifth grade teacher, uh, Sean Thorne, he played 40K uh, really casually, was a painter more than a player, that kind of thing. Also, way bigger in a fantasy than 40K, actually. But he played it and started a cub for you know the 10-year-olds, the, the fifth graders that he taught uh, after school kind of camp thing. And I actually had absolutely zero interest in playing 40K. Uh, but all my friends wanted to play and try it, so I was like, whatever, peer pressure, let's go. So <laughs> I started buying some 40K, and there's a local store 15 minutes from my house in New Jersey. Uh, it's called The Only Game in Town in Somerville. And I started going there and hanging out, making friends, playing little RTTs, and just making, a, I guess, a, a friend group through the 40K community. And that's really what kept me going over the years. And then as I got older and older, I started going traveling more to competitions, and I just fell in love with it. Right. And were you always good at it, like right from day one? No, no I was terrible. <laughs> oh, really? um, I, I, I was no child prodigy, I promise you. Ten-year-old Nick didn't know the rules and got everything wrong and terrible. And then as I got older, like 13, 14-year-old Nick, I, I slowly but surely started to win local RTTs. That took up three or four years. Um, but, you know, that's I was a 10-year-old with all the time in the world, so it was like, you know, I got nothing better to do besides yeah. play 40K. And were you a nerd kid or, or an athlete kid or a kind of a combination? I, I have a weird blend of, of all of those stereotypes. Um, definitely there's the nerdy side. Like we played 40K as a 10-year-old in, into my teenage years. No no spin zoning that into not nerdy. But <laughs> I did play sports. I play, I wrestled in high school. I played soccer, sorry, football for you rest of the worlders. Um, yeah. I played tennis for like 13 years, and I've always liked to be social. I'm very extrovert. I like to make friends in all kinds of aspects of life. So I have tons of friends who play 40K, and that's what keeps me in this hobby. But I don't. I try to have multiple facets to my life outside of just 40K. I want to think that this store in Somerville has got a sign up saying "The Home of Nick Nanavati." <laughs> There's a lot of funny stories I could tell you about that stuff. <laughs> really? Okay. <laughs> there was a. There, I'm paraphrasing. This is my buddy's story, but he's the manager of the store. And some dude who I guess played Warhammer came in the store maybe six, seven months ago, not even that long ago. And he was like trying, trying to sell all these magic cards, I guess. And he's like trying to make it seem like the deal he's pushing onto the store manager. Is like you should really buy my cards. It's a great deal. And to do that, he brought up my name. Like I know Nick Nanavati. Now this <laughs> store manager is one of my best friends. So right. he literally calls me up on the spot. I happened to answer, and he was like, "Do you know who this dude is?" And I'm like, "No." And like he didn't give me context. I'm just answering the question. I don't know what's going on. Right. And it was, I can only imagine what that put the guy on the spot like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen. Um... I feel like we've we've kind of covered off the early days, getting into the game, and then you kind of uh, you know spend your teens playing the game. Uh, when did you really hit the tournament scene? When did you kind of go, okay, this is there's something in this. I'm good at it. I want to keep on going. I think I've always had that competitive niche, um, that urge. Like before 40k, I was like, let's do competitive Yu-Gi-Oh. I didn't even know how to play Yu-Gi-Oh, but I liked the TV show. Right. But I've always had that drive. Uh, I went to RTTs, like I said, uh, probably until I was at 13, 14, and then I started winning local RTTs. Um, when I was 16, I think I won my first GT, which is like 50 or 60 people, which was really cool. Um, and that's kind of when I was like, I'm gonna keep doing this. 
and I'm gonna get it. Just, just there's no end in sight. I'm just gonna keep on chugging away, and that's what I did. Right. Um, I won my first Novitational, I think, when I was 17, which started a whole series of events of like one after the other after the other. Because like I got one, and I just wanted more, so I just get went deeper and deeper into 40k as like my hobby competitive outlet. So I won Adepticon my first time when I was 17. Then I got invited to the WTC team or ETC team at the time when I was 18. And it all just kind of snowballed from there. Cannot tell you how depressing it is as a 50-year-old man to be beaten up by a kid at a tournament. (laughs) (laughs) Is that out-thought and out-strategized by some 17-year-old who comes in? You know, I, I always had that kind of air and aesthetic growing up because it was like I'm the young kid who like somehow was good at this game, beating up adults. Yeah, uh, that's gone now. Now I'm an old man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Seriously, it, it looks like 2017 was a big year. Um, you know, ITC champ in 2018. Mm-hmm. How has the tournament scene changed? Do you think over the years? I've talked to a couple of other people who are like, it's much more uh, almost like in the community acceptable to go to tournaments now, say, compared with 10 years ago where it was seen as a bit of a – Yeah, only it's, for it's a select really group. interesting to, to give you the whole history lesson because i kind of seen it all. I've been playing for, like I said, 17 years. It Back when I first started, Games Workshop was pretty much the only way you could play tournaments, at least anything larger than a local RTT, and they sanctioned their own GTs and whatnot. And those are pretty well accepted amongst the community because they were like Games Workshop. Then um, – for whatever leadership decisions, they had an older CEO, whatever it was, they stopped. You know, they stopped supporting the green tournaments, the Art Boys tournaments, all their circuits. They just stopped, which left an entire void. It was this uh, – they produced this game. They produced beautiful models. They produced rules. Um, and there was no competitive scene. So either where a lot of games would just die competitively – the 40k actually came together as a community a big part i'm sure in turn by like mike brandt and reese robbins who ran the nova invitational created the itc lvo all these things and really um pushed the scenes together and etc over on the european side so then it came a whole dichotomy is like are you the tournament player who's going to accept this rogue uh, outlet for competitive play. We don't even like competitive play. Like you're the problem with the game. Playing the game, it's not the not the way it's meant to be. Because Games Workshop clearly doesn't believe in competitive play. And uh, then there was the side that's like, I don't care, man. I'm just gonna enjoy my hobby the way I want. You can do you. And that's really the dichotomy of it too. It's not tournament players versus non-tournament players. It's very much people who are bothered how other people spend their time versus people who don't care how other people right. spend their time. Right. And uh, now that Games Workshop is getting more and more involved in the tournament scene, I think that's becoming dispelled. The game is becoming more mainstream. I was literally at Target, local convenience store earlier today, or Superstore, I should say, and I just saw a Warhammer 40K board game sold at Target, and I was like, wow, didn't yeah. know that was a thing. Yeah. It's it's interesting for me because I only got into the game at the very end of 7th edition, kind of coming into 8th. And when I first said to a guy in a store, man, I want to I want to go to a tournament, I want to compete here, a lot of the reaction I got from people who had never been to tournaments or not for a long time was, oh, it's a different thing, you know, you go there, you're going to get trodden on and people aren't nice. My experience with tournaments is the opposite. People are so nice and so yeah. generous and so accepting and so, you know, that I wonder... I mean, like, like my story. I showed up to the tournament scene... Uh, Velcro shoes on and all. You know, I'm 14 years old. If people were me and I would have just quit. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, 
Do you think there's a relationship uh, between um, – because I like you, I'm into sport, and I know there's a, a, I've talked to a bunch of people. Lawrence Baker is another one who's a sports person. Stephen Pardo is a sports person. We know about a bunch of people who have this interest in sport as well as 40K. Reese Robbins is, an, is a, an athlete. Do you think that, that a large part of the competitive drive comes from that side of you and then you just take it onto the tabletop? I don't think it's only limited to sports. I have this whole hypothesis. Going. On 40k, and I think a large part of it is that the the fundamental ingredients that make a very successful 40k player typically are the same ingredients you'll find someone who is very successful at life. Now, of course, there's going to be exceptions here, but the way society is kind of structured, not to get so grandiose with it, but the way society is structured is very much to a degree survival of the fittest kind of thing. Like you got to have that drive to want more and do more and be competitive and all that stuff in order to make more money or just have, be successful like in relationships, in careers, or in anything. So I find a lot of the traits that competitive athletes or sports people, as you called it, what makes them good at sports is the exact same genetic that will make them very good at 40K, if you will. Right. See, I'm, I'm not very good at 40K. <laughs> and, I was, <laughs> and to be fair, I was not very good at sport. Um, but I, but I consider myself uh, competitive, you know, like I like to compete. That When I first discovered 40K, I thought, well, this will be cool for painting. It gives me something to focus on that's not like life crap. Um, painting, building, all of that, I thought that would be enough. But once I played my first game, I was like, okay, no, this is it. This is what it's all about, competing and playing. But the social aspect of that is a big part of it too, right? Absolutely. Like I said, the social aspect is what kept me in this hobby as opposed to any of the other games out there or anything else. And I don't want to, you know, thrash this horse because it might be dead soon. But um, in terms of the difference between competitive players, non-competitive players, tournament players, all of that stuff that we've been talking about, it's interesting to me as well that when you get to the level of you and, say, Siegler and John Lennon and and you guys who are producing the videos now for Art of War 40K, that actually – there is no nicer group. When you see Siegler playing, he's kind of helping with dice and going, no, nah, man, have that. That's fine. Look, you were intended to move there, so just do it. No problem. And and he'll still go on and crush you, but he's super nice <laughs> about it. <laughs> Absolutely. I I don't think that's a trait that every competitive 40K player shares, as much as I'd love to boast that. I think that's a trait that certain people do, um, and it comes from uh, a characteristic of that – Siegler and I share, John shares with us, uh, many other players do as well. I don't want to say it's exclusive to Art of War. It's just not all competitive for players. That trait is so much, though, that it is basically, we want to beat you at your best. I want to beat you because I'm better than you, if you right. will. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to beat you because some technicality. I don't want to be technically right. I don't want a technical win. I don't want an asterisk. I want to know that I'm better than you. That's right. the. I'm a competitor. You know, I'm here to prove not not only to earn a trophy, like that's the metric by which we measure stuff, and that's where people get lost, but I'm really competing against myself in a way. Everyone else just happens to be there. I want to yeah. be the best 40K player I can be. I want to be the best whatever I can be. And that means I don't want to shortcut the way to victory. You can do that. People do that, and it's just it seems hollow to me. Yeah, you don't want to get to the other end and have me say, well, sure, you won, but you only won because I forgot to move my guy there and then didn't make exactly. the charge. So, 
exactly. would have been a different game. Um, I actually, in tournaments, I get disappointed when like my opponent rolls abysmally bad on saves or something when it mattered. <laughs> right. Because now it's like, well, we don't actually get to see if I beat you because you just kind of bowed out. Not you. You know, your dice bowed out of this yeah, game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I feel bad when that happens. Who is the best player you've ever faced? <sighs> That's a really tough question. I used to have this answer on the tip of my tongue. Um, I think it's changed a lot over the years. I would say right now, John Lennon is probably the best player out of like the stream group, me, Siegs, John, whatever, and kind of by default, I would say he's the most best player I've played because theoretically that's the most current. He would be better than anyone was two years ago. Right. But realistically, I think it's more of a... I think the question you really want to ask is is who's the best player so I can give you a name, which that would be my answer, but I feel like that's not a great answer. Uh, the question you may want to ask is like, when there's been times in my competitive 40K player career where I've been like, you know, top of the game, winning Adepticons, making people look silly out there, and then I go abroad to ETC or something, and I've gotten dunked on like a basketball. Like I'm telling you, I didn't know people could be that good at 40K. I think that was the biggest eye-opener for me is the first or second time I went to ETC and really got out there in the world. Um, I thought I was hot stuff, you know, 17, 18 years old, coming off an Adepticon win, you know, I'm good. And then I go in there and I just get demolished in one or two of my games by someone who's just playing 4D chess while I'm playing checkers. Right. And it's, uh, it's crazy to see how big of a disparity between skill there can be even amongst the 1% or 2% out there. But it's there. It's real. Right. Well, that was a great long, uh, not long, a great way of not answering the question, but I'll take John in. <laughs> but there are some, you like, when you're first coming up, the name Sean Naden appears a lot. Brandon Grant was there or thereabouts for a long time. There were a bunch of guys yeah. that were kind of, so do you feel like uh, it's a... Well, like, to, to, I'll actually answer your question now, since like you said, I didn't. There are players <laughs> who I think have really good things they're good at. So, Mike Brandt, probably a name you've heard of. Um, yeah. He runs Nova Open. He is now uh, the head of Global Against the Games Workshop, really influencing player in 40K. But very few people know of him as a tournament player. He, he used to play a lot more avidly. Now he only plays occasionally, and he was a member of Team America last year going undefeated at ETC in his first year attending. So I've never played Mike in a tournament, which always... You know, I, I say that you know, there's no test like the real thing. So practice games, I don't really count personally. But I've I've not beaten Mike. He's like three or four wins against me. So he's in, his name's in the hat. There's some European players. Um, Pallone, I don't remember his last name from Spain. Uh, he's a great Spanish player. He runs the most weird esoteric list I've ever seen in my life. They're works of art is the right. best way I can describe them. Like, you know, 40K math, efficiency, it's obvious. There's also 40K to be played more of an art form, and that's the way he chooses to play 40K, which resonates a lot with me. I don't know how to quantify who is the best player you've played because there's so many different metrics to, by which we could measure it, but these are players that are really stuck out in my eyes. Okay, and then, and it's also, it's a tough, it's a, it's a bad question, actually. It's a hard question because there are, there are different eras and there are players who are great in different eras that might not face off well against each other now and so on. Let's let's change yeah. it around then. What's the best army that's ever existed in 40K? Is that, a, is that an easier question to answer? Yanari you mentioned. Is it the yeah. Castellan I, list I, in 8th or the Iron Hands list? Or the... Splitting brims in 7th edition, hands down. No right. questions asked. Do you want me to explain how this worked? 
Splitting brimstones is when you shoot them and they die and they split into two and then... Sort of, sort of. So that's that's the idea. Basically, in, in eighth, the ninth edition, eighth edition, when you shoot a horror unit like pink horrors, your opponent can pay reinforcement points if they save them to turn the pink horror into two blue horrors and then turn those blue horrors into brimstone horrors. Frozen brimstone horrors don't really do anything, but you know there's janky stuff you can pull with coherency and adding models to your unit in the middle of your opponent's shooting phase. It's not bad whatsoever. In seventh edition, it was free. You didn't pay reinforcement points for it. Right. And there was a psychic power that just let you summon horrors if you want. So it was like an infinite-sized army. Because if you summon 10 pink horrors and then free reinforcement points, you just summon 50 models. Yeah. You just put it all the way down. Yeah. So the way the army would work um, is you'd take a unit of horrors. It could be 10 horrors, it could be 20, it could be 30, who cares? Put it in your list, make it a troop choice so it's OPSEC. Then you put every defensive buff you have on it, so you make it invisible, which is psychic like power doesn't exist anymore, Makes it so it can only be hit on sixes. Grimoire of True Names, give it a two-up rerollable invul. This unit's only hit on sixes and has a two-up rerollable invul. Absolutely nothing's killing it. <laughs> but it's obsec and it grows when you do kill it. So <laughs> that army physically couldn't be beaten. I mean, I, I, it only existed for like two or three months before it got right, axed. Right. But I, it, was, it was cheating. It was just legal cheating. I, I want to ask this as well, since you brought up this, that which kind of made me think of the Breviathan list and other lists that have kind of done the rounds. And I've heard you joke about this on, on various uh, broadcasts, and it might be games or feeds or whatever, um, about being the player responsible for nerfing certain armies. And I think you gave Siegler a hard time for being the player responsible for nerfing Tau. <laughs> is, is that a thing, do you think, like Games Workshop go, oh, well, look... These guys have taken it and done something silly with it, and now we have to kill that off. Is that, is that how the system works in real life? I, I'm not going to pretend to know how Games Workshop actually does their system. <laughs> I, I don't think that they have some spies in the network who are watching my every move or Siegler's every move to see what are they playing in the basement at 3 a.m. <laughs> right. Oh, no, we got to nerf that. No, not at all. I think when one of us takes a tournament like LVO by storm with some broken combination we found like Breviathan or Double Spear Unari, whatever it might be, splitting brims, you don't have to work very hard to find that result. You know, it's all over the internet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then it's pretty obvious how we used it because once we do it, Everyone knows how it works. It's no longer a secret. The whole world knows. So then they're like, oh, wow, we didn't actually want unkillable dreadnoughts and infinite obsec horrors. We should do something about that. <laughs> That's not... It just happens to be that we're the kinds of people who find that stuff and use it. Right, right. Yeah, you, you're the ones that are able to go through and see these combos and go, hey, wait a minute, if we layer this and this and this and this, that makes that thing stupid. Um, all right, I want to ask about this as well. Uh, people were surprised when you switched to White Scar's uh, early in 2020 for the LVO. You just made this sudden decision. But I've gone th back through things, and you kind of have a history with switching armies. You had Black Legion and Yanari and Asurani, and this is all in 2018. Tyranids you played with, yeah. and Orcs, and, you know, you were coming first and second and third with all different armies. So is this just a thing you do? You kind of have a, is it a short attention span, or is it just <laughs> a, you like to play different armies and learn different armies, or you just want to go with whatever's hot right now? What is the, what's the go? It's it's a bit of all of that, to be completely honest with you. Um, I find I'm most successful in my tournament endeavors when I don't switch armies, uh, which means not meta chasing and not army hopping and all that. And as you said, you know, I'm getting second, third places, whatever, when I do switch, so it's not like I'm, I'm pooping the bed out there. But 
when I, I'm on my rampage of winning four or five majors in a row, it's when I'm playing the same army for four or five majors in a row, much like how Sieg's won the entire season with Tao, or Jim Vessel won the first half of the season with the same exact chaos list. They're, they're, knowing 90% of the list versus knowing 100% of the list are two very different things at the top level. Yeah. Um, to your question, uh, I think a large part of it is that for my business and my brand, I need to be able to at least play every army moderately well. And I mean moderately well, like, you know, to that 90% category. Because I teach it. Yeah. I literally teach how this army works and how to beat it from every other army's perspective, which means I have to understand every army really well. So I do like to play a lot of different armies. Also, you know, like you said, there's a little bit of list ADD going on. I do get bored fairly easily, that kind of thing. Because 40k is my job now, so it's like, huh, do I want to play the same thing all day, every day? No, I right. don't really want to do that. So... It's, it's been a struggle because there's the balancing act of getting familiar and competent and advanced with every single faction, but then there's also I need to pick one and master it so I can actually go win the events. And that's If you look at my 2019 season, I think that's where I really ran into this problem face first because I switched armies way too much trying to learn everything, and I, not to say I did poorly, I got like third in ITC or something, but I didn't do as well as I would have liked. Right. Well, that's the thing. When you when you win the thing, when you're the ITC champion, you go into the following year with a very high expectation of yourself. Yeah. Right? It's, so, once you win, you know, second place doesn't look as an accomplishment anymore. Yeah, for every <laughs> other normal mortal, second, third, whatever, in the top five in the ITC would be just this an extraordinary, unbelievable achievement. Is that fair to say? Like for you from now on, first is, is the expectation or the goal. I, I think that's been fair to say for most of my tournament career. Right. Like, not to say, like, I, I go home and cry to my pillow because I got third place at a tournament. Let's not blow this out of the water. But right, right, right. Y- you don't win the ITC by aiming for top ten. I'm just going to put it that way. Yeah. So, you know, my mom used to tell me in school, shoot for 100, maybe you'll get an A, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, My parents had a similar philosophy. Shoot for the stars and you're going to hit somewhere in between, right? Um and are the rules of the game written? Do you think the rules of the game are written with with you in mind or with me in mind? You know, that's a really good question. Certainly not me. I don't even know if it's you, Steve. I think it might be. They are writing the rules based, and this is totally speculation. But I've been in the industry for like seventeen years now. Sure. And I I think they it starts with fluff and lore, and models. I think. You know, this guy's got a huge cannon. They designed a huge cannon. What does this huge cannon do? Or this guy in the books killed, like, an entire legion of people. He's got to be badass. And then the rules just reflect that. And then they get refined to translate into an actual game system with hopefully some balance after. But, you know, what is the inspiration of a model or a rule or a unit? It comes from the models themselves by design or the fluff. So it starts there and then turns into a game. I feel like they're getting better at that too, matching the rules to the lore of the of the, yeah. the armies. And uh, they the... are. They are. You can see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eighth was like compared to seventh. I only had a little bit of experience in seventh. But when eighth came along, it just made more sense the way it, the way yeah. it worked and the way that the armies interacted with each other made more sense. Seventh is a big extreme example if you want your riptides and your knights and your flyers all fighting together, but you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing, do you know what the thing that the first time I had a land raider roll over a crater and then I rolled a one and it was stuck there for the rest of the game, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Anyway, <laughs> that's, that's just yeah. how it worked. Um, what made you then, 
go from okay, I'm I'm good at this and I'm enjoying it and I'm competing, uh, to to then want to help other people and and how did you get into list writing and coaching? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, very roundabout. So. I have always kind of wanted to do some 40k content creation as like a side hustle, see what I can do with it. This is like since I was like 17 or 18 years old. But I was like, this is not a career. This is not a job. This is a waste of time. Like, this is my hobby. Let's keep it that way. Let me go to college and get a degree. So that's what I did. I got a master's in supply, or not master's, a bachelor's in supply chain management. And then I got a big boy job at Revlon, which is the women's cosmetics company, um, where I was doing data analytics and stuff for them. I was basically an Excel monkey, and I didn't like it at all, but this is my first real job at a college, and I was like, work experience and all that jazz. So I real I came to a point, like two years into this job, and I was like, I just can't do this for the rest next 40-something years of my life. This is, <laughs> right. is going to kill me. This yeah. is sucking my soul, and I'm 23 years old. Like, no. Um, so that is going on on the internal side of my life. Then uh, externally... Uh, LVO is coming around the corner. This is LVO 2018 at the end of the 2017 season, which I did end up winning. So I was like, let me let me try to go win LVO. And I really, like I said, I picked Yanari because they were just so obviously amazing, at least to me. Um, and I learned them. I didn't switch armies. I didn't army hop. Uh, I just learned them the way you know I coach people to do. And then it worked. I won LVO and I became the ITC champion. So that was around January of 2018, and right at the beginning of the year, January 2018, so like maybe two or three weeks prior to LVO, I had gotten laid off by my job at Revlon. So I was like, well, crap, I'm unemployed, but we already bought all the stuff for LVO, so I guess we're going to go on one ITC. Um, so then my life plan was to go get a master's uh, in business, something or other, which would have happened in September, so about eight months from when all this occurred. Um, and that left me this stop period of beginning of February to early September where I don't really want to go get a job that I'll have to leave in a few months. And uh, I don't want to be doing nothing with my life. So I was like, let me start making a little 40K company called The Brown Magic. And it started out as a blog. And then I was like, you know what? Let me see how I can do this. Uh, so I started charging $3 for a list. Right. You know, I, if you want me to help you with your list, three bucks. It was literally just to gauge interest. Like, am I going to get laughed out of the room here, or am I going to see what happens? So right. I'm picking I, there was a lot of interest at the $3 mark. Uh, at the $3 price point, <laughs> I was writing lists, like 100 lists per day. I'm wow. not even, like, I woke up, I went to Starbucks, I wrote 40K lists, and then I came home and had dinner. Like That was, that was day-to-day life for me. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, so then... Uh, we went up to five, and then ten, and then fifteen, and then I got a lot of different uh, supporting elements from different companies that saw what I was doing and were like, "Hey, we want to get involved. We want to help you out. Here's my ideas." And different clients who or people who just became clients were like, "Hey, Nick, I really like what you're doing. Uh, I want to support you. I want to help you. Try this, this, this instead, or do this instead." And, you know, like I'm not so conceded that I thought I knew what I was doing. I was writing 100 lists a day. Clearly, I'm not doing this right. So I, I really tried to listen to those who were I, who advised me and yeah. kind of work at it. And uh, two years down the line, here we are at Out of War. Yeah. Uh, you know what? And it's interesting, and I, I hadn't planned to bring this up, but I will because you kind of have. It's interesting to me. I uh, 
kind of met you that way and I, I heard your podcast and then said, hey, man, I've got some ideas for how to make your already very good podcast better if you want. Now, I've said that to other people where, where I really like what they're doing. Uh, as a broadcaster, I've been in broadcasting radio and TV for 30-something years. And so I have every now and then gone, hey, I like this person, I like what they're doing, but maybe they could do it better if, and I could give them some help for, for nothing. Nine times out of ten people go, nah, we're good, thanks, don't worry about it. You came back and went, yes, I'll, I'll listen to what you've got to say, you know, what do you got? I think that it says a lot about a person when they can go, I think I'm doing all right, but I'm also willing to take on ideas from other people. Do you think that's got anything to do with your success? Tremendous amount. Um, I'm relatively inexperienced, much more so than I was four years ago when I embarked on this adventure, but uh, especially so when I was like 23, 24, I had no real business acumen. I knew very little um, in the grand scheme of things. And I had a very ambitious project, which was starting the Art of War. I didn't even know what it was at the time. It wasn't the Art of War. It wasn't even a conception. It was just like, I want to write some lists for some people and write some articles for a blog. Somehow turn this into a career. Um, and it all, like, the entire Art of War podcast is because John Damaris, who I, you know closely, Steve, he literally approached me pretty much the same way you did as a coaching client. I was like, hey, Nick, what do you think of starting this podcast with me? And like you said, I'm sure nine times out of ten people would have been like, nah. <laughs> but, you know, I was like, this is a really good idea. Yeah. I want to start a podcast. This sounds awesome. And then you, same thing. You're like, this is ways to improve your podcast. And yeah. I was like, you know what? Those ideas you just said, they make a lot of sense. And I'm not just like some empty shell following whoever says words to me. I evaluate, I consult, I talk to my advisors and people who I value their opinion. What do you think of these ideas? And you, you got to weigh the checks and the balances. You don't have to do all of them. You can do some of them. But uh, I, I can tell you, like, I will hear anyone on any idea out. It doesn't mean I'm going to follow through with it. <laughs> right, but, like, sure. I do try to keep an open mind on everything. Yeah, you can't follow every idea you'd be all <laughs> right. over the place, right? Listen, um, you, you've mentioned a couple of times brown magic, and I, I don't know if there's a, a, a gentle <laughs> way to, to a, approach this or not, but is being a brown face in a sea of white guys playing this game, has that been a, a good thing, a bad thing, just not a thing at all for you? That's not to be not to steer this conversation in the wrong direction, um, but I don't mind talking about this stuff. I have lived my entire life as the one brown guy in the sea of white guys. Like I, to me, it's like totally natural. Like I'm perfectly comfortable living in this this weird niche I found myself with the brown magic and all that. From the outsider's perspective, I could totally understand why. Like, what the hell is this? But uh, no, nah, it works for me. But it's not a thing, right? And in fact, it was you're able to use your uniqueness in a way for your branding which is good um how has the growth of the internet and all the online communities and the sharing information um, and a lot of that information is just not good information you know there's a lot of there's a lot of garbage out there but then you balance that with the access to your professional services has it made 40k better or worse both um overall net better net better Better yeah. in some ways, worse in other ways, but not better. So to answer that more specifically, I played 40K since before there were forums. You know, in yeah. uh, 2004 when I started, internet forums were just barely a thing and certainly not for 40K. And then it slowly became some. And then things like Warseer and Daka Daka. And then it evolved to competitive 40K. And now there's actual websites and services like Art of War and whatever else. So that evolution is natural with the way the internet has progressed. You know, 
what is the internet in the beginning? I have no idea. And then it became a place for people to interact. Social media, the boom, the boom of social media that happened in the 2000s. Internet forums are just another form of it. Then yeah. so on and so forth, people start to professionalize it. It's, it's not good because, the, like you said, there is a lot of misinformation and there is a lot of negativity on anonymous forums or any place on the internet where you can pretend to be someone else and just pretend to be an expert when you're not or any sort of the thing, that's, that is part of the, I guess, frustration caused by the way the internet works in every industry in the world or every aspect of the world, you know, like, check your sources. But uh, it's created so much opportunity. People really are benefiting from the stuff that 40K has become. People know about these events. There's a circuit. There is a lot of positivity in the 40K community. There's so many battle reports and tactics videos and all kinds of things you can watch to learn to get better. You can learn how to paint. There's Twitch streams, YouTube streams, all kinds of stuff like that. It's as you, as your podcast indicates, it has changed the game. Yeah. So yeah, like I said, net positive. Now, the, before we go, I do have to ask you this, John Damaris. If I'm listening to the Out of War 40K podcast, which I do a lot, John Damaris refers to you as the Tom Brady of 40K. He says there's a story attached to that. About about three months ago or so, um, I went out to a bar with a couple friends, and I met a girl at said bar. And uh, long story short, we she came back to my place after the bar, and I had told her, you know, loosely, you know, I can't hide the fact that I'm a 40K player. Hey, Nick, what do you do is one of the first questions anyone will ever ask. I have an answer for that. It's all prepared, and I've answered it a billion times. But I definitely downplay exactly what 40K is, and I'll, I'll tailor it to the specific person, giving them more and peeking behind the curtain more and more based on how I think they'll react. So with random girl I just met at a bar, not trying to go the full nine yards of this is what a space marine is. So we get back to my apartment, which looks like a Games Workshop explosion happened, literally just 40K seeping through the cracks in the walls. Like It's, it's everywhere. <laughs> And then she's like, wait, you do you play like Warhammer? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's the game I was telling you I play like professionally. And then she was like, oh my god. And she she calls her friend. This is It's like 12 o'clock at night, 1 in the morning, something like that. She FaceTimes her friend who somehow answers. And he plays Warhammer. And then she's like, do you know a Nick Nanavati? And he's like, a Warhammer player? And then um, she's like, yeah, him. And he's like, oh my god, yeah, like, why? He's like a really good Warhammer player. I like, watch his stuff on YouTube or whatever. And then she's like, well, I just met him at a bar, and now I'm back at his apartment, and, and then he starts, she's FaceTiming, so I'm standing right there listening to all this. He's speaker mode, and she's, he's, she's like showing him my stream room with all the armies on display and all the technology and all that. And then the dude through the phone screams, He's like, oh, my God, don't screw this up. That is the Tom Brady of 40K. <laughs> that is That's so good. That is so good. Oh, my God. Well, that was worth That was absolutely worth it. And we're just going to leave it there. Nick Nanavati, thank you uh, for everything you do for the game of 40K. I love that you're so positive. I love that you're helping people. I love that you're able to be a professional in this game. Uh, so thanks for all of that, and thanks for being part of the program today. Really appreciate it, mate. Yeah, Steve. Thanks for having me. Anytime, man. I'm happy to talk to you. Uh, it's a pleasure. 
My thanks to Nick Narvati. You can find Nick at theartofwar40k.com. The link, of course, is in our show notes, along with your easiest way to get your hands on a COVID-proof Frontline Gaming Events Express Pass. Next week, Winters from Winters SEO and Deployment Zone on how he got that name and quitting the factory to become a full-time content creator. Until then, I'm Steve Joel, and this has been 40K Game Changers. 